Today I get to read the scripture and I ask that you join me as we step into the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way before you? The voice of one crying in the wilderness? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance on the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loosen. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I have to admit something to you. I love the title, Perspectives. Also need to admit one other thing. I'm a news junkie. I just am. I like to get different perspectives on the news. I listen to at least three different news sources on television. I read a half a dozen different newspapers online. Thank goodness for online viewing, so I don't have to subscribe to all of them. But I play the field. I try to figure out what everybody's perspective on the same issue is. I find that fascinating. But one thing... I don't know if you share my opinion on this. One thing I'm kind of getting tired of is breaking news, right? Everything is breaking news. Nobody's reflecting on the news from a week ago or even further, just breaking news. And uh, this week, I don't do Instagram, my wife does, and she uh, read me an Instagram post that I thought was really appropriate to this. It says... It's just exhausting to be experiencing a new historical moment every six minutes. Um, that, that's kind of where I feel like we are sometimes right now, a new historical moment every six minutes. And um, it'd be nice if we could just get some perspective. When it comes to perspectives in the Gospels, here's my lead-in. John is different in terms of the way he writes and what he emphasizes. I'm I'm sorry, Mark. We're talking about Mark. Mark is different than the other Gospels in terms of his style and what he emphasizes. He gives us a different perspective. As a matter of fact, the speed of John, if you go from one Gospel to the next, you will notice it immediately. And it's almost overwhelming. It's like breaking news. He starts out a lot of the description that he's about to give you with words like at once or immediately or instantly. 
He uses those phrases a lot of times. His language is also rather dramatic compared to the other Gospels. He'll, he'll use phrases like, and they were all amazed, or everyone was astounded, or these people stood in awe of Jesus' teachings. That's just the way he writes. His cadence is fast. He writes with emphasis. He also gets right to the point. I love that about John. The stories are really not that long. They're just there. For instance, instance, in Luke's gospel, if you're recording uh, according to verses, there's about 1,147 verses in Luke's gospel. In Mark's gospel, there's about 661 verses. How about that for a contrast? Less than half. Or not quite, less than half. What's unexpected, though, is the brevity of, John, of Mark's description does not leave out details. As a matter of fact, sometimes Mark includes details, often he includes details that other people do not. It's fascinating. Here's two examples of the way Mark includes details in his short book. One example. You remember the description of Jesus taking a child and bringing him into the circle of disciples? Matthew's gospel says he brought a child in and stood him in the middle of the disciples. Mark's gospel said he brought a child in in the midst of the disciples and he took the child in his arms. Now that's not a contrary opinion. It's just another description. He not only brought the child in and stood him in their midst, he put his arm around him. Or perhaps put the child on his lap. John drops things like that a lot. Here's another one. You remember the story of when the disciples are at sea and there's a storm that's coming up and Jesus is fast asleep in the boat? It's only Mark who records the fact that Jesus was fast asleep at the front of the boat with his head on a cushion. Nobody else says that. Mark is unique in a lot of ways. His brevity is great, but he doesn't leave out important details. So what about John? Or excuse me, Mark. Somebody somebody just shoot me the next time I say John, okay? Or, no, let's, let's be a little more gentle. Throw a paper wide at me if I say John again. One thing that is interesting about Mark is a thing called the Messianic Secret. Now, the Messianic Secret, so-called, it appears in other Gospels like John, uh, but in Mark, it's especially true. The Messianic Secret. You're asking, what's the Messianic Secret? It's like this. Jesus says something, and then he says to whoever he said it to, don't tell anybody about it. On a couple of different occasions, Jesus healed somebody. And when the healing was over in the Gospel of Mark, he said, don't go telling everybody about this. And of course, they went out and did that. On another occasion, following the transfiguration, that's when Jesus is standing in the center of Elijah and Moses. After that transfiguration is over, he says to the disciples, 
this has been great, but don't go blabbing about it. Leave it up here on top of the mountain. Don't say anything. Isn't that curious? You got to wonder why. Why does Mark emphasize that more than the other Gospels? It seems, if you take a look at the tapestry of the book, it seems like Mark makes that statement early in the portion of his Gospel, and then at a critical turn in the road, he changes. And no longer does he say that Jesus said, keep quiet about this. Now it's like public information. Why the change? It's quite possible, I think very likely, that Jesus was saying in the early days of his ministry, whenever asked about his messianic role, he was being coy. He wasn't actually coming right out and saying, yeah, I'm the Messiah, you got it right. You recognize he doesn't do that until the end. And at the end, what's the emphasis? The emphasis on suffering, the cross, and the resurrection. That's when he reveals it. Beforehand, he seems to be secret about it. you got to wonder why. Maybe it's because Jesus knew that if he threw it down right away, that he was the Messiah, people would immediately attach the notion of a first century Messiah to him. And that notion was overwhelmingly political, a powerful figure who would conquer by the sword. And Jesus may have said to himself, not yet, not yet, not yet, until I can tell the end of the story. My Messiahship is the Messiahship of a suffering servant and one who rises from the dead. So Mark is famous for the Messianic secret. Mark is also famous for emphasizing suffering. He emphasizes the suffering in Jesus' life and he emphasizes the suffering in the life of the believer. We don't know for sure, but we're pretty confident at this point that Mark was probably written somewhere between 68 to 70 A.D. Now, in order to understand Mark's audience, it would be helpful to figure out what was going on then. So let me tell you something about what was going on then. Tacitus, a historian that's outside the scriptural reference, describes the 60s, not our 60s, the first century 60s, this way. He said, the history on which I am entering is that of a period rich in disasters, terrible with battles, torn with civil struggles, horrible even in peace. Four emperors fell by the sword, There were three civil wars and more foreign wars, and both of them at the same time. This was a chaotic time. As a part of the chaos, Christians were being persecuted. Nero precedes Mark's comments. And then after that, it gets worse. The point is, these people are under intense scrutiny, pressure, and severe persecution. 
And when John writes to them about a suffering Savior, he does so in a way that helps them to enter into the life of Jesus and find similarities in the suffering Savior and in them, those who suffer for Christ. There's an odd sense of encouragement going on here. Mark definitely wants to emphasize the suffering of Jesus. As a matter of fact, it would be easy. I was talking to Dan earlier this morning. It would be so easy for me to geek out on all this stuff. There's a bunch of stuff I'd like to say, a lot of history I'd like to get into. But this is not a New Testament survey class. It's a sermon. So I'll hold my fire a little bit, but I'll tell you just this one thing. Sometimes certain theologians have suggested that the idea of a suffering Savior and the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is a later development in Christianity. Sort of nudged by the Apostle Paul, but really developed later. Why? Because they needed it. Those first Christians, they needed that because they wanted to reinforce who they were. And, and they came to this new understanding of Jesus Christ as a suffering servant, the one who would take away the sins of the world. Nerding out here a minute, I don't agree. Don't think it's true at all. I actually think the theme of the suffering servant runs all throughout Mark and throughout John and throughout Paul, and throughout the entire New Testament. It's there if you have open eyes to see it. Mark emphasizes it in a different way than Paul, but it's there. The suffering servant, namely Jesus, is linked to Isaiah, and it's a fulfillment of a prophecy. The second thing, third thing, concerning Mark's emphasis is his realism. Mark was just honest. He was just realistic. He didn't gloss over things. As a matter of fact, perhaps more than any other gospel, he portrays Jesus in his humanness. He helps us understand that Jesus himself went through the wrestling with emotions. He speaks of him as being moved to compassion when other authors don't use those words. Remember that occasion where a young, rich, young ruler, it said, came to Jesus? And he said to him, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life, the kingdom of God, to be on your side, to understand this thing? And Jesus said, well, obey the commandments. And the young man said, I've obeyed all the commandments since I was a child. And then Jesus said, you know the rest of the story. Okay, one more thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then follow me. The young man couldn't do it. He dropped his head and he walked away. Discipleship was too much. You know what uh, Mark adds that John and Matthew and the others don't? Mark says, Jesus looked on him and loved him. He looked at him, and he loved him. Mark is full of those kinds of expressions. He was realistic about who Jesus was, that he suffered pain, that he got hungry, 
and of course that he died. But there's something else that's really realistic about Mark. He doesn't make the disciples out to be poster boy saints. He makes sure you know who they were, especially his account of Peter, which, by the way, are probably the words of Peter written by Mark. The gospel traditionally suggests that Mark was transcribing the sermons and the words of Peter because he was his constant companion. And when it comes to the description of Peter being the betrayer, Mark does a better job than anybody else. Mark routinely basically calls the disciples stupid because they didn't get it. That's just Mark. He's realistic. And I love it. I just love it. There's a fourth thing that Mark emphasizes, perhaps more than any other. It's Galilee of the Gentiles. That might sound a little bit odd. Galilee was the northern section of Israel. And in the northern section of Israel, people were thought to be rather uncouth and uneducated. You remember that's where Jesus comes from. You remember the phrase, does anything good come from Nazareth up there? They even know, were even known for having a different kind of accent than the rest of the people in Israel. Remember the episode where Jesus has been denied by Peter on a couple of occasions and sometime, somewhere along the way somebody says, wait a minute, you pretend like you're not one of them, but I know you are because you have a Galilean accent. I got gotcha. you. Galileans were well-known, but not well-respected. The people in the southern part of Israel looked down on them. Kind of like, you know, people from Indiana look down on people from Kentucky. You know what I mean? Um, I often say the reason that people up in Indiana look down on the people from Kentucky is because they're afraid they might be related. Um, Here's the thing. People in southern Israel were related to people in Galilee but still they look down on them. Mark seems to show that more than the others, but there's something else in Mark's emphasis about Galilee. Galilee was surrounded by the Gentiles in a way that other parts of Israel were not. It's as though Mark is emphasizing that, though he never says it. It's almost as though he's emphasizing that to let us see the next step develop. What's the next step that develops after the Gospels? It's the book of Acts. And where does the Gospel expand? To the north. On the edges of Galilee and beyond. The door is opened in Galilee. The Galilee of the Gentiles. I think that's a fascinating prelude to the book of Acts. Finally, in terms of emphasis, Mark emphasizes what he said at the very beginning of his gospel throughout. Doesn't start with the birth narrative. He just starts with an announcement. This is the good news about Jesus Christ, that is, the Messiah, the Son of God. And right at the beginning, he places the baptism of Jesus and John, this is my beloved son 
in whom I'm well pleased. I want you to know right up front, says John, I'm telling you, he was God. Of course, we know that John, that Mark emphasizes his humanity as well as his deity. But at the beginning, Mark sets the stage. This is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark routinely uses two phrases or groups of words to identify Jesus, Son of God and Son of Man. Sometimes those words are in dispute as to their meaning. Some biblical scholars want to refer to the fact that Son of God, Son of Man sometimes just refers to regular people, like prophets or like King David. And sometimes those same biblical scholars want to suggest that that's all it referred to, and it doesn't really refer to Jesus' divinity. Just to cut to the chase, I think that's nonsense. Son of God and Son of Man are equally divine titles. And when Mark uses them, he means to identify Jesus as divine Son of God in the flesh. Just a quick interpretive hermeneutic tool. I've said this so many times, you probably get tired of hearing it. But the most important way to interpret a text, especially Scripture, is not through a word study. It's through the context. Where is it said? Example, from real life. If I were to say, son, what might that mean? It might mean that I had just spoken to my son, David. Or maybe not. Maybe it would be me, as I've heard people much older than me routinely do. Son, thank you, son. Referring to a younger man. I can remember my father and grandfather saying that all the time. Not to me, but to other people who were younger. How do I know what son means? It doesn't have a specific meaning all by itself standing alone. I can't do a lexicon search and get the definition of son to my satisfaction. What I do is I look at the context. And if I'm addressing it to my son David, you know what it means. If I'm addressing it to some young fellow who helped me in the hardware store, you know what it means. In much the same way, when you look at the Gospels, ask that question over and over again, but especially when it comes to Son of Man and Son of God. Mark is routinely emphasizing the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. So, application for just the next few moments. uh, Applications that relate to what we've learned about Mark. First point of application is this, the importance of the Christian doctrine of the unity of Jesus as fully God and fully man. It has got to be both ways, not one or the other. 
And to overemphasize one is to neglect the other. I must tell you, it's one of the hardest things to do in preaching. To make sure you're not tipping in one direction or the other. Because they are both equally true. And in their equal truth is their power. It is the unique reality that Jesus Christ was fully God. And that same swaddling baby was fully man. It is absolutely essential to our faith, my friends. We can't give up one for the other. That fully human Jesus suffered just like we suffered with all the travails of life that we have and yet without sin. That same Jesus was absolutely fully God. And when the travails of flesh snuffed out his life, the reality of eternal life comes through the resurrection of that God-man, Jesus Christ. We've got to have them both. Don't ever give up on either. It's absolutely central to our faith. You may be reminded of this by some of the creeds that we read on Sunday morning for our communion Sunday. Remember the words of the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. Look at that. <laughs> conceived by the Holy Ghost, completely divine, born of the Virgin Mary, in sweat, blood, and tears. And He suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, dead, and buried. And he rose again. Or the Nicene Creed. And I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds. That's a reference to eternal begottenness. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Oh, yes, but... Even though being one with the Father as to his substance. That same Jesus, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate, made fully flesh by the Holy Spirit of a Virgin Mary and was made man. And was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And on the third day rose again. According to the scriptures. We've got to keep them in holy tension. It's the core of our faith. Second point of application is the necessity of the cross. It emerges from Mark's gospel. You know as well as I do that the necessity of the cross is not necessarily popular. Why do I say that? Well, because 
some people want to embrace Jesus and the cross by saying it was just an act of divine love. He just loved us so much. And that is true. But there's something else underlying this thing called the cross and its important necessity. It had to be that way. It had to be that way. Because we needed that kind of redemption. Because we were so bad. Our earth was so spoiled. Things were so twisted, out of control, that the only solution was the death the suffering, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There was no other way. That was God's way. So that the life which is eternal comes out of the suffering through the cross. That too we've got to hold on to tenaciously, my friends. It too is at the heart of the gospel. It's not some optional love story, which of course it is a love story. It's necessity because things were that bad. The third point of application is this, extending that understanding of suffering in the person of Jesus Christ, we must accept suffering as followers of Christ. Or to put it another way, to be a disciple means to suffer. It means to be pulled in opposite directions from the dominant culture. It means to be pulled towards righteousness when in your flesh you want to be pulled towards sinfulness. It means sometimes being persecuted just for following Jesus. Thanks be to God that that doesn't happen to be our lot in a severe way. But I tell you around the world, if you haven't been listening, it is that way. There are people who die for their faith all the time. And it's part of being a disciple. The fourth thing and the fifth thing are qualitatively different than the first three. The fourth thing is this. I see in the teaching of Mark, in this messianic secret section. Something I think we should learn. You notice that Jesus just didn't roll it out all at once? He didn't just say, hey guys, sit down, here's the whole truth of the matter. I'm going to be blunt and open with you, there it is. It wasn't Jesus' style. Maybe he had reasons that were, oh, chronological. Or maybe he had reasons that were very, very astute concerning the human personality that is ours. Let me put it another way. We can't take it all. It'll blow our mind. We're not ready to handle all the truth about God. So why? Why, my friends, do we pretend like we have to say it all in evangelism or in counseling or in discipleship? 
Jesus was gentle in the unfolding of the revelation concerning himself. And it seems like to me, we too should be gentle in the unfolding of the revelation concerning Jesus Christ. You don't have to say it all at once. You don't have to close the deal every time you introduce Jesus. You just need to be sensitive about what needs to be said concerning Jesus. So discretion. The second word, which is my last point, is humility. And I think the reason we can have discretion is because we're humble. And here's the humility part. We need to realize that even though God's revelation is complete, our understanding of that revelation is not complete. I don't care what kind of theologian you are or how long you've studied the Bible. My friends, you don't have it all figured out. It's too big. It's too grand. The narrative is too deep. So let's admit that. Let's be humble about the fact that even though the Word of God is the full revelation of God, it's not everything we need to learn about God because God is teaching us through this revelation all kinds of lessons in our life. There are certain lessons that at the age, well, almost said 60. I'm not quite 60. Didn't come till June 1st. At the age of 60, that I now understand that not only did I not understand when I was 25 or 30, but I could not have understood when I was 25 or 30. It would be humanly impossible for me to understand some of those things. That is the ongoing revelation of Jesus Christ in my life. I continue to follow even though I don't understand. I continue to follow humbly when it seems like everything I'm hearing goes on the opposite of what I want to be or what my flesh wants me to be. I continue to follow. I continue to study. And as I do, the revelation of God comes alive in new ways. It is a great path of discovery. And I must admit, someone could take this suggestion and run off the rails with it. I don't want that to happen. The guardrails of the tradition that comes to us through the church, the guardrails of the creeds that I've read, they're important. I'm not suggesting we concoct a new theology. I'm suggesting we understand the revelation of God more thoroughly and admit humbly that we got a lot to learn. Let's pray. Lord, you've been gracious to unfold your revelation in parts. We don't know why for all of those parts. Sometimes, Lord, I actually wonder why why you couldn't have let this thing called the good news of Jesus Christ historically come sooner. But you didn't. I'm certainly aware of how in my life I've routinely wanted you to speed up the learning process so I didn't feel so silly. 
or stupid, as Mark might say. But as I reflect on it, I need to feel silly and stupid because it humbles me. So as I and those who are listening study intensely the words of Scripture that you have given us, we pray that you will give us discretion in our proclamation. Let us not be unnecessarily urged to tell everything all at once, but to unfold it the way you did for your disciples. And then to remember that the reason we ought to do that is because you're still unfolding your revelation for us. Give us the humility that comes from a lack of understanding. And give us the tenacity that never wants to stop learning. And we'll thank you for that. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.